white people have only been white people since 1680. Welcome to another episode of Work Life Unbalanced, hosted by Jason Lichney, a branding and marketing expert, graphic artist, and entrepreneur, and Regino Romeo, Chief Human Resources Officer, HR Expert Witness, and Forbes Author. Whether your workplace is your true north or things are going south when it comes to work, it's only something. This show is brought to you by CBS HR Consulting and sponsored by LinkedIn Talent Solutions and Oracle Public Sector. I'm Josh Goldman with music from Matt Michaelis. And now, here are your hosts, Jason and Regina. So, um... Before we started off this podcast, we were having a discussion. We're here with uh, Jacques uh, Whitfield again. And, Good afternoon, um, everyone. And obviously my esteemed co-host, uh, Regina. Still and here. Still here. <laughs> and so, Jacques, we were talking about this whole perspective of uh, white people, black people, brown people, whatever, pick a color uh, people, and... You mentioned to me that in history, white people have really only been white people since the year 1680. And take me down that path. Like, why? Because uh, come I along we and were go around. with me on a fantastic <laughs> voyage. <laughs> uh, it's such a pleasure to be back with you, Jason and Regina. And yes, I love this question. And it's such it opens up a whole it opens up a whole new world. Because for you know, uh, you asked a question earlier about where do we start, and we start from right where we are now. And in, in seeing where we are now, we get to acknowledge that hey, where we are now is not the way we've always been. Race, fun fact, race. There's only one race, and that's the human race. Scientifically, Homo sapiens sapien is what we all are. Race is a social race in terms of color, is a social construct. It was made up, pure and simple. Uh, and to your point, uh, the, the reference to the 1680 was the first time that we see white people described in, in a legal writing is uh, in colonial Virginia uh, during, and, and that was uh, the colonial uh, Virginia state statutes, um, where it described different citizenry and it described white people being uh, a separate, distinct group. Obviously, the top of the food chain as it relates to colonial America, but that's actually the first time that we've seen that. And many people think, and, and it, it reminds me of uh, a previous conversation we had, and I was sharing like what many of us, where we were in school, we were taught there are three racial at, uh, racial groups. There's Caucasian, there's Caucasoid, uh, Negroid, Caucasoid Mongoloid. Negroid, Mongoloid, and all of that is fake science. And it was debunked as fake science. But Jason, the interesting thing, and Regina, you and I have chatted about this as well, even though it's fake science, and we all know it's fake science, many people are operating today like it's a real thing. Like yes. there are actually three different racial groups. And we know that that absolutely isn't true. And it's interesting because it's even just in my lifetime, haven't been around since 1680, you know, I'm still <laughs> just keeping it fresh. But, you know, but it's it, it's one of those things where white people have always been white. Asian people have always been Asian. But black people in my lifetime, I've been Negro, colored, Afro-American, African-American. But to me, I'm like, I've just always been black. <laughs> you know, I, you know, not not a whole lot's changed. And just the the way that it has 
transitioned, you know, from one thing to another. It's like, what does that even mean? Exactly. And we never got, it's not like they passed out a survey that we could actually <laughs> fill out. I remember the day I became African-American. It's a funny story. I was in college. It was 1984. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up black. <laughs> yeah, right. Went about my daily life doing what I do. Went Thinking to class, hung black, out with friends. Right? And then uh, at that time in 84, the Cosby show was really big. Yes. So I went and yes. hung out with, it was Thursday night. That was the beginning beginning of must-see TV, right? So uh, I was hanging out with my friends, and there was this episode on Cosby where there were lots of multiracial people, and they were just explaining, you know, it was, it, I guess it was their attempt at doing some sort of diversity and equity inclusion mm-hmm. conversation. And uh, the, the grandfather um, started talking to the children about different racial groups. And that's when they introduced the concept of African-American. And I kind of did the Scooby-Doo, like, <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm like I, I thought we were black. Did we right. get a thing? And I didn't I know. know about it. Did I miss it? a memo? <laughs> was that at the last meeting that we discussed? It? Right. You and know. then I think it was like the following month, Ebony Magazine featured on the cover something relating to African-Americans. And again, Regina, I'd always considered myself well, and black. It, and it's funny that you say that because I still say black and people are like, and I'm like, but I'm black. Right. You know, so, but I, I had a similar thing where my friend and I were talking about African-American. I'm like, I'm not really feeling that, especially because my heritage is West Indian. So at best I'm West Indian American exactly. or Caribbean American right. or whatever, but do we even need to split hairs? And so he asked me, he said, well, do you consider yourself black or African American? And I said, black. And he's like, okay, good. Because you need to make about another $30,000 a year <laughs> to be considered African American. Cause that's what <laughs> happened. It was the Cosby show. And there was a doctor and a lawyer and it's like, well, we're African American. I'm like, I'm not in that space. I'm not, I'm not at that income level, exactly. you know, or whatever. So I would just be over here and be black. Right. And I think the takeaway is that race is a social construct. And when you, and it goes back to a conversation that we were having earlier about human being, the characteristic of human beings and human beings probably for the last hundred thousand years um, developed this uh, concept or a way of being of categorized. We've always mm-hmm. categorized probably from, whether you're evolution or divine intelligent design, whatever, whatever your, whatever your philosophy is, human beings, since human beings have been on the planet, have been distinguishing themselves one from another. Now, in terms of using color, that is a, if you look at the last hundred thousand years, distinguishing on the basis of skin tone and color is a relatively modern phenomenon that only came around in the 16th and 16th and 17th century. Why did it shift from like cultural affinity or like, you know, distinguishing based on culture to literally judging a book by its cover based on color? When did that happen? And so that happened at the beginning of the at the beginning of the 16th century as uh, European state nation states were becoming nation states in and of themselves. You had, if you look at Spain, Spain used to be uh, a group of lots of smaller kingdoms than when Ferdinand and Isabella actually united this Spain and they drove out um, the Moors who were from North Africa. That concept of identifying us as a Spanish state, the English, again, lots of kingdoms and fiefdoms and serfdoms who became the United Kingdom of Great Britain, 
when you look at France went through a similar process. But I like the Spanish. I like the Spanish example because here we have an example of there were lots of people of African descent living on the Iberian Peninsula. And what the Spanish used in terms of unifying the nation was not only religion, Roman Catholicism, but it was also the physical characteristics of the people on the Iberian Peninsula looking at color. Uh, and then that's when the concept, really the Spanish and the Portuguese, uh, introduced this concept of uh, we are different because of our skin tone. You're right, Jason, for millennia and millennia and millennia, it had always been culture. Really, it was it language. Thing. <laughs> it, it, right. It, right. And right. so so it's interesting. And, and I think, and again, through the lens of acknowledgement versus agreement, you don't have to agree, but you certainly get to acknowledge that, look it, we haven't always been divided on the basis of color. That mm. is a modern phenomenon. And it was a really... Fun, it was a modern phenomenon that served a purpose. If we're uniting them versus us, and we can now define us as being white and Catholic and Christian, and them being non-white and non-Christian and non-Catholic, then that just further... And then you create a, a global a worldview, a philosophy in which... We are better because we are those things. We because we are white, because we are Christian, and any and this is the and this then becomes the ideal. And anything that is farther that from is the not I- that exactly <laughs> it is not then, ideal. Then whether it's uh, you know it, it's totemized really. It, it's it's just a hierarchical system that now we use not only class, not only wealth we also get to overlay color and where it is easy to switch your religious or spiritual affiliations it is not easy to switch the color of your skin and so that was around the same time that the that the slave trade in Africa began to uh, increase and expand as the Europeans began to come to the Americas and begin to colonize the Americas and look for a workforce who can survive in the Americas. After uh, enslaving the indigenous people, it then became uh, the goal to colonize uh, to use people of African descent who were from warmer climates who could survive malaria who had all of the the, the built-in a genetic disposition if you will to really thrive and survive in warmer climates and then if those people are not human and are not Christian and are not white then there goes your social justification why we can exploit this group of people now I'll tell you uh, that was a very that was a rewriting of history even at that time because again everyone knew that Africa was the center of civilization and knowledge and learning. It wasn't the dark continent you had to create. I mean, it was really a revisionist history um, theme at the time because you had to rewrite history because everyone in antiquity knew about, you know, Timbuktu and Egypt and Kemet mm-hmm. and Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. They, they've, they're world-renowned. Right, the kingdoms. The yes. kingdoms, right. exactly. And so in order to... Uh, in order to embrace this new worldview where now this new white people um, are at the top of the food chain and everyone else is subservient to them, you had to write a narrative to go with that. I mean, even the term Caucasian from the Caucasus, you know, the, the mythology was that white people came from the Caucasus Mountains and 
that's just not true. <laughs> that's not <what> it <laughs> it's not even a thing. And everyone also knew, you know, in, in antiquity that civilization began in Africa. Mm-hmm. And so now if Africa, if, if, people of uh, colored people are less than then you have to rewrite a history that goes that with fits that. that exactly right. so how do we get so now that we have that understanding or, or we have um, you know that knowledge is there for mm-hmm. anybody who wa- who wants to un- understand it but when it comes to where we are right now I think one of the things that it's interesting it's always one of those things where you look back on history and it's like, oh, okay, you know, now I can understand, you, you right. understand a little bit differently. But I feel like we're living through a very historical time right now. So how do we begin to redirect maybe some, or just kind of relearn and unlearn what we've, you know, already learned? Because I was still rocking the whole Negroid thing until <laughs> a few weeks ago. Um, but, you know, how do we get to the point where we're understanding that, oh, okay, there really aren't these differences. Because one of the things that I had come across in the last week or so is a survey that was done by um, the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science. And so what they did is they surveyed a lot of of 200 and something um, doctors or people who were in medical school who were going to be doctors, and they asked them questions that were stereotypes about black people. So it was like... um, do you believe that black people have thicker skin, that their their tolerance for pain is higher, and a bunch of other things that are obviously outdated, but it was close to 40% of people that had answered yes to at least one of those questions. Right. So I think what that does, it, it, it if that's how they're being informed about it, because when you think about um, the medical industry and how healthcare is distributed or given to other communities and who have been maybe underrepresented in the testing and in the, the how we come to have knowledge. That's because that was this was a survey in 2016. <laughs> so this wow. was not a survey from right. like the turn of the century. Exactly. You know, this was just like the other day, right. really. You know, and so having people still hold on to those beliefs, like how do you reach? Because you're talking about the medical industry, but it's going to be translated to you know, what we do in civil service, where you're talking about every industry when you think about it, and how do we begin to have conversations around relearning or learning the truth about some of those things that is not the mythology that you alluded so, to? So, great questions, and I think it's a continuation of the conversations that we were having earlier. The first thing you've got to do is recognize from the acknowledgement space mm-hmm. that my worldview is not the only worldview. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you've got to recognize these feelings, these beliefs, they came from somewhere. Right. And it really requires us to, uh, with a thoughtful and deliberative eye and way of being, is begin to reexamine where did these things come from anyway? To begin with. It's (laughs) like we talked earlier and we said that, you know, history is always told from the perspective of the victor. Mm -hmm. Well, in many, uh, much of our history is... Uh, is mythology, and 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 that's not a bad thing, right? Because you know there, you know, one can make a you know a credible argument for why mythology is important mm-hmm. in terms of you know unifying a nation and you know giving a national theme with a, a per, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and all of these things. But when we recognize that uh, 
the mythology came from somewhere, mm-hmm. and it, there was a purpose for the, the mythology. Reason. Exactly. Right. For the <laughs> right. example, you know, all of us learned in you know uh, elementary school and middle school about manifest destiny, mm-hmm. which is great if you're the European settler and you yeah, if you're the one the, taken. If you're the one taken. <laughs> if you're if, the one losing, it's, it's not so a good raw deal. If you're like, well, wait a minute, my people were here for like ten thousand years, and right. what? 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 What happened to our manifest destiny? Right. Is it? Is it mobile? I mean, right. you know, yeah. it's like a spin the wheel thing and well, then I, how about finders keepers how about that one exactly <laughs> i found it first <laughs> right so so and, and again it's and that will allow us you know in this acknowledgement space because it may be far too disruptive and mm-hmm. it is and yeah. regina we've talked about this it's far too disruptive to say i'm exchanging the old worldview mm-hmm. for the new worldview and it's if too- you're you know somebody who's been around for I'm not going to say how old I am, but let's just say I'm not in middle school, you know, but somebody who's, <laughs> exactly. who's like, you know, in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s, right. in their 60s, you've held this belief for your whole life about some of these things. So it is difficult to let that go or even let any other perspectives in, you know, so even if you're not going to necessarily believe in something, just even having a conversation around, well, maybe I don't know everything about this, you know, or exactly. maybe there is some alternative, you know. To say, to not say, okay, well, you were wrong for thinking this because you had to learn it from somewhere. Absolutely. And that's basically what we continue to teach. So I think, I like to think of this as the age of enlightenment, <laughs> you know, where everybody has an opportunity to have their voice heard because I think historically, like you mentioned, it's always from the victor. It's, oh, no, man, we came, we were doing good. Right. You know, we came in to do all kinds of good stuff. And then the people who were, not the victor, you know, have never, have never really told their story. Right. And so now that we're uncovering a lot of the layers and thinking about some of these things from a, a perspective of how it impacts different areas of our lives, not just at work, but also, like I said, in the medical industry and in whatever industry that it is, we can now draw some connections to this was the thought, oh, okay, so, oh, okay, I get it now of how we got right. there. And I think that's why words are so important. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Jason, you started the conversation earlier today with just understanding terminology mm-hmm. because words do have such power. And if we're, if we're really going to have these thoughtful discussions, it's absolutely critical that we're all on the same page. For right. example, and I know you and I have talked about this before, Regina, the use of the term minority. Mm-hmm. When the United States was established, there were more people of color on the American continent than mm-hmm. there were white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the term minority came to be used for people who, by all intents and purposes, there are there are 1.5, almost 2 billion people of African descent mm-hmm. on the globe. Mm-hmm. One in four persons um, on the globe speaks Chinese or, or is Chinese. So you know, you, to call Asians minorities, to call black people right. minorities is, is again, it's just, it, it's a dis, there's a disconnect. Well, but, it's, but, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, but there's a purpose mm-hmm. because if I feel like a minority, right. I'm going to feel smaller than, and I'm going to, I'm going to be the marginalized individual that the words right. are driving. I'm going to internalize Exactly. That. And so it's always interesting because when, you know, when you're in school and you see that world map, you see Canada, North America, and South America at the center. And then Asia is split on the two sides. Right. When you tilt that just a little bit to what it really looks like, <laughs> exactly. Asia is huge, exactly. you know. And one of the things that I used to ask in when I was, when I first started doing diversity training forever ago, 
I would ask the first thing was, what's the most common male name in the world? And people would always, what do you think the most common male name Probably is? John Smith. What do you think it is, Jason? I mean, that's what people would answer. That's yes. what I, 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 yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> you know, or the, the most common male first name. People would always say John or, you know, some biblical name. And it's actually Muhammad. There are more Muhammads than Johns ever will be, you know. And so changing that conversation because you're coming in thinking very um, – with your perspective that right. may have been narrowed not – because you wanted it narrowed, right. but because that's just what people have always told you. It's like, whenever we have somebody in the Western world, it's like, it's a John Doe, it's a Jane Doe, you know, when we don't have a name for somebody, but it's like, that's not the only conversation on the planet. You know, exactly. it's just kind of like, it's Muhammad, <laughs> you know, and to have people go, oh, okay, that's where we start, you know, right. to where it's just like understanding that there are other things out there beyond your borders. Right, and then when you look at images and when you... uh Again, through the unlearning and relearning process, you learn that the the policy of the United States as it came to immigration from the time we were, you know, we were established as a country until now has really been um, a tendency to allow far more Europeans into the country Mm -hmm. to make sure that what what was being seen was a white United States mm-hmm. with a smattering of diversity. And I, I think it's, that's why I think it's so interesting to have these conversations about immigration now mm-hmm. when, if you understand the true history of the history of immigration in the United States, it has really been to a you know, the country, the, the leaders of the country at that time who were white and male wanted there to be lots of white Alikeness, exactly. Right. And right. again, it's it's just it's you could say it's affinity bias. You can say you know manifest destiny. You could say I mean there are lots of terminologies mm-hmm. that you could use, but the role is and the takeaway is it's by design, mm-hmm. and that's why any solution, Jason, I think that we embark upon, it's got to be intentional. It's got to be by design because what we have and where we currently find ourselves, you know, this is not an accident. This is by design. Right. So um, yeah, I, I think this is this topic is is incredibly fascinating. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's a good time to maybe do a little redecorating, a little, hey. a little new interior design, <laughs> <laughs> or at least brush up on some history. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> thank you very much again, Jacques, as always. And uh, always we'll be enlightening. Yeah, we'll, we'll a be pleasure doing to be here. A number of these um, podcasts and, and bringing in a couple of other guests uh, on diversity, equity, and inclusion because. It is such an important topic for today. So thank you again. Thank you, sir. You guys have a great day. And that's a wrap on another episode of Work-Life Non-Balance. To learn more about our show and our host or sponsors, visit WLUBradio.com. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All shows are produced by Jason Lichney and Regina Romeo and are recorded in the CPS HR Consulting Studio in beautiful Sacramento, California. Old music is written and performed by Matt Michaelis. Check out all his music at mattmichaelismusic.com on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download music. Until next time, I'm Josh Goldman. Thanks for tuning in.